I don't know if you've heard of the term 1.5 generation. I also identify as that because it essentially at its core is defined as someone who was born abroad but raised like here oh, okay. in whatever country. And so you're like technically the first generation, but you're also not the first generation because you were like raised here, right. Like, right? From like your childhood. You didn't immigrate later in life right. when you already had experiences other culture. Right. But you're also not just second generation because you don't really have anyone come before you. Right. Hey, and welcome to I'm Adopted, Now What? A podcast where we talk about all things race, culture, and identity, one chat at a time. This is for people who want to get real, get deep, and figure out, now what? I'm your host, Liza. Welcome to the podcast. On this episode, I chat with Emily Quinn, another person who I met through the Subtle Asian Adoptee Traits group on Facebook, a group where I've found many of my interviewees for this podcast, season one. We chat about things ranging from her own personal experience in COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement to where we fall generationally being adopted and technically being immigrants, but not really being raised with immigrant parents. She tells me about her experience studying Asian American history in college and how that has impacted her identity today as an Asian American adoptee. And we discuss the idea of adoption normalization and how that can be different in other countries depending on which country you live in. It was a really fascinating conversation, and I felt like I learned a lot, especially because she is so well-versed and knowledgeable in the whole area of Asian American studies and history. It was just really cool to hear about her perspective. I hope you find it cool, too. Okay, here's the episode. Hi, Emily. Yes, this is her. Hi, Emily. It's Liza. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being willing to talk to me so quickly. I really appreciate it. Of course. So you were adopted in 94, right? I was, yes. You were adopted from, how do you pronounce the region you were adopted, the province you were adopted from? Jiaojiang. Okay, I'm definitely not going to try and pronounce (laughs) that. So I guess, like, how did you come to find the like subtle adoptee Asian traits group? I was just invited by other adoptees I know. So I've actually been in contact with other adoptees my entire life, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So I, because I grew up going to um, heritage camps for adoptive families. Oh, wow. Okay. And they actually, so they're based out of Colorado. So all of the camps are in Colorado, but they serve people from all over the country and even around the world, sometimes people come, depending on the camp, will come from different countries around the world. And so I grew up going to their Chinese heritage camp since I was like three. Oh, wow. And then have been in contact with other adoptees. And so I think just one of them invited me to the group. Awesome. Wait, I've never really heard about the heritage camp thing. Like, what do you do? 
at the, like the Chinese one? So they're all based on the similar format where they're four day family camps and they're summer. They're all like over technically overnight camps, but if they're more in like the Denver metro area versus up in the mountains, sometimes the families, if they live around there, just like go back to their own houses. Oh, okay. But they're four day family camps and they used to have more, but they have nine camps. So they have a Korean heritage camp, a Southeast Asian Pacific Islander heritage camp. Mm two Chinese heritage camps, just because the influx of adoptees was so big, they needed a second one right. at one point. An African-Caribbean heritage camp, Latin American heritage camp, Indian Nepalese. Wow. And a domestic. So, yeah, so all these camps. So what you do is the kids go off during the day with their peers in their age group mm-hmm. and with counselors. And most of the counselors are racial mirrors. And especially now that some of us adoptees are older, a decent amount of the counselors are also adoptees Mm -hmm. of either of that race or of that ethnicity, I should say, or other adoptees from other countries, depending on the camp, there's some crossover. And then the adults during the day go to their own workshops on different topics with adoption and on like the culture of that camp. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the all the workshops are either cultural adoption based or kind of like team building based. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up going to that and then have been heavily involved with them. Since like I was a teenager, I was a junior counselor and then was like a regular counselor. But I went to college actually on the East Coast. So Mm. There's like a little bit of a hiatus in there just because like it was hard to make it back. Right. Um, yeah. For my camp. But. So you're you're from, are you living in Colorado now? So I'm currently living in Phoenix, but I'm actually about to move back to Colorado in about a month. Oh, okay. But yeah, I grew up in Colorado and then spent most, like pretty much my whole life there wow. until I went to school and then I went to college in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And then it was a six-year DPT program for physical therapy. Oh, wow. Okay. And so most of those years are in New York. Of course, I came home for breaks and stuff. That's so cool. And then, yeah. Do you feel like going to, like, those heritage camps with your parents, like, put you in touch with sort of your Chinese, like, roots? Yeah, for sure. I would say like, you know, it's definitely one of the best things I mm. was, and I feel so privileged to have been able to have that mm-hmm. as a resource my entire life. And, you know, it's so nice because so many of the other campers, like I'm really good friends with some of them. And then the counselors like watched me grow up. And so a lot of the counselors who are, you know, 10-ish years older than me or so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a little less, but are like really good fr- family friends. So that's been super nice because, it, like, I've had those racial mirrors my entire life. And now, like, they're having kids. And, like, so that's pretty fun to see wow. kind of that change and, like, getting to meet, like, their little ones, which is fun. That's so cute. Um, but, yeah, I definitely think it helped. And then, I mean, my parents are also really adamant about putting our Chinese culture in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sister is also adopted. She's oh, wow. two years older than I am. Okay. Um, but we were both adopted from China. And so our whole lives, we really kind of were like exposed to our Chinese culture, whether that was like 
you know, celebrating the Lunar New Year, mm-hmm. like going to dim sum, like different things like that. We both went to Chinese school. I quit when I was younger, <laughs> but my sister continued on. So she and my mom went for 14 years straight. Oh, wow. Every Sunday. And my sister also did traditional Chinese dance. And I did Kung Fu for a short bit. So I definitely had like that exposure growing up. Mm-hmm. And then my mom also helped to organize the first Colorado Dragon Boat Festival. Whoa. So it started out as like a one day festival, but it's grown. So now it's pre COVID, you know? Yeah, of course. It was was a two day festival that celebrates the Asian American Pacific Islander cultures in Colorado. And so it definitely grew a lot from when it first started, but she was like on the original operating committee for that. So that was really cool. She was really involved with the Chinese community and Asian American community in Colorado to make sure that we had, you know, enough resources. And yeah, so that was that's awesome. amazing. That's so cool. And your mom or your parents are white or are they yeah, different races, par- mixed race? No, my parents are both white. My dad is Irish German kind of mm-hmm. mix. And then my mom is Italian. So you have one older sister adopted from China. Man, that is so, uh, I've been talking to so many adopted people who also have siblings and I have such FOMO. Does, does you, do you feel like it helps that your sibling was also adopted and then adopted from the same country as you? For sure. I think like, you know, it definitely helps. It's always going to be something that bonds us. So, and I think, it was, you know, especially like I'm the younger one. So it was nice to me like to have like that role model growing up mm-hmm. too or have someone who had like a similar beginning. I will say my mom always said I was like the perfect second child because I like did most of the things I did. I like didn't do or like I stopped because I didn't want to be just like my sister. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to be different and my own unique person. Mm. And so like our experiences, like while we were like raised in the same household and stuff, like are definitely still different. Of course. But I do think it definitely helped to like, you know, have somebody else to either like relate to or just play with growing up it was definitely nice in that regard yeah and so because you had like all of this exposure to cultural Chinese things like I also went to Chinese school that I also quit and (laughs) (laughs) like my mom I remember my mom used to like basically she would try and give me the opportunity to connect with my Chinese heritage like you know, celebrating adoption day, celebrating Chinese New Year, or like also going to like language classes. And I was just so adamantly against it. Like I would fight my parents and be like, no, I don't want to go because I'm not Chinese. And then when the Black Lives Matter movement began, all of a sudden, like, like the way I thought of myself as being white made me feel like ashamed. How has processing the Black Lives Matter movement forced you or not forced you to come to terms with your race and cultural identity in a different way than before? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm like, I definitely am different in you in that I feel like my entire life, I've always identified myself as either Chinese American or Asian American. And so I think, you know, in terms of that, like, the Black Lives Matter movement didn't really impact me in that regard because I have mm-hmm. I've already like my entire life been identifying as a minority or like quote unquote minority. And I think, you know, while 
I also had like a lot of the socioeconomic privileges of growing up with white parents. I, you know, on the surface, racially, have definitely lived like a different experience than my parents and experienced like racism and, you know, whether it was microaggressions or whatever. I had definitely experiences of that growing up, even though I grew up very similar like to you, like white suburbia. Mm -hmm. But I think almost Mm -hmm. because I grew up in white suburbia, it almost made my phenotypical differences that much more apparent when I was younger. And so, but it's like something that, you know, like I've always been aware of. And so I think it's Mm -hmm. like something that I've just always like almost accepted and been proud of too, like. When I was in kindergarten, my first day of kindergarten, I found another girl who was Asian. And at the time, of course, I didn't really know that she was also a Chinese adoptee. Of course, I found this out within probably like the first week, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But we had become like best friends in our early elementary school years. And that was, I think, part of it because we Mm. could relate to each other. And we both knew we were like from China and we've like grown apart just because like we went to different high schools and stuff. But I still kind of like follow her on Facebook and everything. But Mm -hmm. like, you know, from my, I guess my point is like, you know, from that early age, I knew like right away. Yeah. And I identified. And then I think to like further like explain why it didn't really impact me in terms of like racially, my own identity Mm -hmm. is like, I actually studied Asian American studies in college as my minor, which I also feel so appreciative and grateful that I got that opportunity, privilege I got that opportunity because it was actually a brand new minor. I was like the first or second person in my school to sign up for that minor. And oh, wow. Yeah. And so it was like awesome because, I mean, of course, like our histories are not taught in this country because it's so Eurocentric. Yeah. And so like for the first time in my entire life, I actually learned my own people's history in this country as it related to me. Um, And so I think from, you know, doing that and having all this education throughout college through my minor and then other things I was involved in on like diversity, equity, social justice issues, mm -hmm. it's always been something I've been passionate about since I was little. But then, Mm -hmm. you know, going through some of these programs and college obviously made me that much more passionate about it. Mm-hmm. So I would say, like, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, like, I feel like this is almost like the second wave of it, right? Like, you know, I feel like even the second wave is, like, the wrong language to use because it's history has repeated itself over and over for generations. But in terms of, like, our generation being able to, like, use our voices, I feel like it's almost like yeah. within this last decade, the second wave of it, right? Like, the first wave was kind right. of, like, Michael Brown and Eric Gardner and Trayvon Martin. And then it kind of like lulled. And then, of course, with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and all of them this year, it got heightened again. Yeah. But like in college with Eric Gardner, I actually helped to organize a protest on our campus. And we, it was like really so liberating to like work with other people of color, especially black students on my campus and help organize. Mm -hmm. And we did like an, I can't breathe protest. And I remember I was like, it was so cool to watch because literally within like 12 or something hours, Mm -hmm. we had gone from planning it on like Facebook to having like a, having it in person, like a big thing on our campus 
So that was like really powerful to me. I feel yeah. like in this new wave, it's been more difficult to actually be physically involved because of COVID. Of course, um, yeah. And with my profession and I was living with my parents for a bit, I didn't want to expose them. And so yeah. I didn't feel comfortable going in terms of a pandemic standpoint. I think that, you know, the second heightened awareness period has has caused me to become more of an advocate and more of like somebody who is also doing more of my own work again on further mm-hmm. educating myself and how I in learning more on how to be anti-racist and yeah. doing webinars with, you know, other people. And I think like one of the biggest things that I've participated in is that I've been trying to do a lot of webinars with other people in the Asian American community or like participating in mm-hmm. them. I'm not organizing them, but like mm-hmm. participating in webinars that organizations are putting on to like learn how to be a better advocate and better ally and really be there in solidarity with our mm-hmm. black brothers and sisters. And so I feel like in that regard, I've been trying to work on myself more internally, externally to help better support that community. Mm-hmm. Or even if I can't physically do it now, help support them more in the future, reaching out to some of my mm-hmm. friends who are in that community and making sure that like they're doing okay and reaching out to them more than just like when things are not so good, but just reaching out to them to know that to like let them know, you know, I'm always here for you. I support you, that type of stuff. Yes. So you said that you have always felt at least to some degree Asian American or Chinese. And that is so amazing. And I am wondering if you've ever experienced this where people will ask you, where are you from? Yeah. So I'll start off by saying like, it's definitely happened to me. And in different contexts of my life, I take it more or less offensively. Right. So, you know, like, for example, when I went to college, I didn't take it offensively because everybody was constantly asking everybody, hey, where are you from? Like, Mm -hmm. just getting to know Mm -hmm. each other. But in other instances that, especially if like a white person asked me, like, out of the blue, and I'm just talking to them or something, like, where are you from? Like, and they say, like, oh, I'm from Colorado. And they're like, no, where are you really from? Right. And then I have to get into the whole, well, I was adopted from China, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something that occurs. But I will also say that's just also a very common microaggression that occurs in the Asian American community as a whole. Oh. And it's actually a stereotype that Asians are, like, perpetually foreign in this country. Right. And yes. so, yeah. So even with that, even without being an adoptee, if I was just raised in America, same body, same, you know, yeah. outward physical traits, et cetera, and I wasn't adopted, I would still get that question, I'm sure. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And so, like, I think there's a lot of other Asian Americans who get that question as well, mm-hmm. even if they, or even, you know, Asians or Asian Americans, if they have an accent or not. And so I think that's definitely something where, again, contextually, like, if it's another Asian asking, I'm like, oh, like, it doesn't really matter as much to me because I feel like they're actually asking, like, either what region are you from mm-hmm. or, like, geographically versus, like, someone in, like, an out group, like, usually someone who's white, who's more in power, mm-hmm. and they ask me, I definitely take it more offensively because I at the root of their question, they're trying to ask, like, what is your race? Right. Like, what is your ethnicity? Right. And I'd much rather just have them ask me that. Exactly. Really, like raise their eyebrows and do all those things. But 
at the end of the day, they also may not realize what they're doing. Yeah. So I think like when I get a lot of question, depending on who I'm with, if they're open to it, I either educate or I just kind of brush it off like, oh, here we go again. Yeah. But, you know, like, especially, like I said, like, especially learning about Asian American studies as a minor and learning a lot of the history, it almost opens a new perspective for me. Right. But then I think also, right, like, in the state of COVID, it also has other implications, too. Absolutely. Where people, if they're, they just take you for your race and what you look like, can be more prejudiced yeah. against that. or. Are like, oh, well, where are you from? And like, and you know, of course, like politics aside, like our president isn't helping no. by calling it like the Chinese flu, yeah, and like the China virus. Yeah. Right? And, you know, so that's not helpful either. And so it's like those people who might be more apt to like insult like people by asking where they're from or like intentionally try to get that question, not do it necessarily in just like a curiosity kind of way, but more of like a, I want to, like, know that I'm in power type of way. Um, Um, mm -hmm, Or, mm -hmm. you know, especially in today's world, right? Like, where are you from? Like, I don't want to catch your Yeah. Like, that's obviously, like, has other implications that are. Yeah. And then I don't know, like, I think this quote, like, relates so much to kind of both of what we were talking about earlier about, like, identifying as, you know, Chinese or Asian American. But also this question is, have you seen Crazy Rich Asians? Yes. I did. I saw it in theaters. So, okay. So I don't know if you remember this, the scene where like Rachel is shopping for dresses with her mom yeah. and she's talking about like, you know, she's like, yeah, but like he's Chinese, I'm Chinese. And then her mom, one quote that always sticks in me just because I think it, I, I identify so strongly mm-hmm. with it is she, she says it in Chinese, but she's like, here you're Chinese, here you're Chinese, but here you're American. Yeah. And I think that is just so true of people who identify as, I think more of people who identify as Asian American Mm -hmm. versus people who identify solely as, you know, Asian or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think adoptees a lot of times experience obviously that too. But that, you know, in between being somewhere in between these two cultures and that in-betweenness, that gray space is like definitely an adoptee occupied space but also an asian american occupied space and then i don't know if you've heard of the term 1.5 generation no not that term so i also identify as that because it's essentially at its core is defined as someone who was born abroad and then but raised like here okay yeah and so because you're not you're like technically the first generation by blood or whatever oh i see yes Um, okay but you're also not the first generation because you're you were like raised here, right. Like, right? From like your childhood, so you weren't you didn't immigrate and later in life right. when you already had experiences other culture, right? But you're also not like just second generation because you don't really have anyone come before you, right? I've never thought about that before in that way. Yeah, and so like I think you know as adoptee, I like identify as that, but then I also recognize that other Asian Americans could identify as that as well if they immigrated as young children. Mm -hmm. And I think that as someone who's 1.5 generation, it also, you know, has that unique gray area, that gray somewhere between space of 
you know, almost if you're thinking of it like almost like the umbrella, right? So it'd be like Asian American and like all these other terms underneath. Mm-hmm. And it's like almost an- another branch of that. Mm-hmm. For today's episode sponsor spot, I would like to talk about this company called PMD Beauty. I have definitely been suffering from maskne during COVID. I don't know if any of you are, but the constant on and off of wearing masks has not been kind to my skin. And one of the ways I've been able to combat maskne, which, you know, as the name suggests, is acne that comes from the constant wearing of masks on your face, which basically like suffocates your skin pores so that any dirt that's trapped in there remains trapped. It basically just keeps the dirt in your pores. Now, I have been using PMD products for a long time. I use their facial brush. It has a silicon head that is made up of little tiny silicon bristles. You just pump your facial cleanser onto the bristles And what the vibrations do is they dislodge all that dirt that is stuck in your pores. Because it's silicon, it doesn't hold on to the bacteria. They're really easy to clean. And it comes with all different settings, slow vibrations, fast vibrations, different pulse settings so that you can use it on different areas of your face. It comes in a nice carrying case so that you can travel with it. It's great. It's done wonders for keeping my acne at bay. The vibrations that dislodge the dirt really, really do the trick. And I like that their whole mission is to bring confidence throughout the world through innovative tools and skincare products. They just came out with their clean body brush, which is the exact same thing. It's just larger so that you can cover more of your skin on your body. They come in all different colors. And on the opposite side of the head of the brush is quartz. And quartz is really nice as a depuffing agent. When you wake up in the morning, you lay the quartz side on your skin or wherever you want to depuff or, you know, wake up your face. And the coolness of the stone helps depuffing. It's kind of like the idea of a cucumber on your eyes, etc. They also have different products like personal microderm. So if you're someone who goes to the spa and gets this done for lots of money, you can buy their own personal at-home microderm system and it had it you know it's clinical grade exfoliation with a vacuum that refreshes your skin and leaves it radiant and you know you get all the benefits of doing microderm in a spa or at a facial place just in the comfort of your own home which is definitely what everyone is about going into 2021 as we all still grapple with covid they also have like mini devices where you can, you know, they have ones specifically for lips, ones for men. 
And as I said, I've been using my own personal PMD facial brush for years and have really, really noticed how it's kept my acne that has come back from all of this mask usage in COVID at bay. If you are suffering from maskne or if you have reached a point with the quality of your skin where you just can't seem to get rid of like the last bit of acne, then I would definitely give this a try. It's really, really cool technology and they're all about boosting girls' confidence all over the world. It are, they're really cool products. They have a subscription service where you can get sent every month or every six months replacement discs for the microderm device, different, you know, cleansers, different skin products that they have so that you never run out. And again, that's great for COVID. I love their products. I've really noticed a difference in my skin. And if you want to try it out, check out their website. Okay, back to the episode. Do you think that like gray between areas, like I heard like, so someone else that I was talking to about this put it really well. They, they basically were like, so in America, whiteness and blackness fall on a spectrum where white and black mm-hmm. are like the most extremes and all the other races of the world fall somewhere in the middle. But I've heard it said before that like Asians or Asian Americans are often considered like the bridge, if you will, between white and black because they, Asians are a minority technically, but a lot of them work in tech and a lot of them become, you know, like like engineers and doctors and they sort of rise like to the top and American like of the American dream and American success in a way that black and brown people have notoriously been unable to do because of the way that the American system works against them and so I wondered what you thought about that I mean I'm sure you've heard that sort of expression before and what do you think about it yeah so I mean I've definitely heard of it before so right like our country is built on racist systems yeah. and racist policies that have created this hierarchy yeah. of races, for sure. And I would agree that because of the histories and the policies that, that, that have been in place, it that, you know, from the top going down, it's usually white and then Asian. Yeah. Which, of course, has its own hierarchy within it, right? Right. Because Southeast Asians are at the top of that yeah. South Asians and those who have darker skin yeah. are also below. Right. At least, you know, especially as you relate it to police brutality, other things like that. Mm-hmm. And then, right. And then it's kind of like Latinx and then black and brown people are black people and indigenous people. Yeah. And I think it's like super important to understand that a lot of the policies that were put into place is what caused that. Absolutely. In part. But then also because of all the prejudice and everything that occurred against Asians as well and the racism that occurred against them, mm-hmm. a lot of Asians 
in history have tried to assimilate more into white culture. Yeah. And so that has also created that more of an equitable like hierarchy and yeah. has created that divide. Mm-hmm. And then it's also, I think, important that actually people in power, so white people in power and different organizations that had white people in power also caused part of that divide between yes. Asians and Blacks. And so I think that if you look at history, Asians and Blacks could have been so much more, uh, even though we have very different experience, been more solidarity. Like there's, there could have been yes. a lot more solidarity between the yeah. communities. Yeah, no, I think that's accurate. White communities not tried to put them against each other. Yeah. So, you know, like if you like look at one instance, like if, I don't know if you've heard of Yuri Kochiyama. Mm-mm. She's a really well-known activist, Asian activist. Mm-hmm. And she stood alongside like Malcolm X and during that whole civil rights movement, mm-hmm. she was like right alongside all of them. And so much so that she actually was the last person to hold, she was like holding Malcolm X's head, I think, as he died. And so you look at that and there's so much solidarity, but then you look at like the LA race riots and right. how those communities are pitted against each other. But if you look further into like the details of the history, it's because of like these policies that they were pitted against each other. Yeah. And so that is a long answer, but yes, I have heard of it. I definitely, I would agree with it and concur with it. And I think in some regards, it's almost, to me, it's like one of the sad things that I find about the Asian American history in our mm. country is like, how much of the assimilation tried to occur so mm-hmm. that they yeah. also wouldn't be at the bottom of the hierarchy. Yes. And then I also think that it's important to note too that even abroad, there's definitely racism against Black people in yes. Asian countries. Oh, absolutely. And so that also, I think, contributes to, to some of that. Yeah. Well. No, that's so true. I, like, as soon as you said that, like, this memory popped up in my head where in my hometown in New Jersey, there was this one spot that I would always get my nails done and it was run by Vietnamese people. And I remember that like, I find often when I go and get my nails done, I feel like I get asked that sort of like, Oh my God, where are you from? Question from like the nail techs and the Mm -hmm. nail ladies. And the ones that I have gone to have all been Vietnamese. And so they will ask with like equal fascination as like a, as a white person will like where I'm from and you know, why do you seem so American? Like, do you speak like Mandarin? Like, no, I don't. And I think, but I don't know at the same time, like I think me looking Asian makes them feel more comfortable with me because a lot of the time they'll start talking to me about, like gossiping about other people in the <laughs> in the salon or like the people that they work with and one there was this one time where like my the nail tech I was that was doing my nails was talking about how like how she had a bad day and I was you know trying to make small talk and I was like oh like why was it bad and she was like well because I had like three black like customers come in today and none of them tip me like the black people never tip me and I in my head is like oh my gosh like there oh my gosh there's so many problems with that statement it was 
really good background for me, though, that the day before I had seen Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, which I don't know if you are familiar with that film, but it came out like in COVID and it was like released on Netflix. And it's essentially like these four, they're old men when the movie starts and they kind of go between current like present day and flashbacks to when they were young men fighting in the Vietnam war. Mm -hmm. And it, a lot of this, a lot of the movie is showing and highlighting the racial tension between the like black soldiers and the, like the native Vietnamese people. And a lot, like a lot of them, like there's this scene in the movie where they're in like a floating market and a Vietnamese man tries to sell them something and you know he really needs to make money so he kind of pushes it and one of the black soldiers like yells at him and as a reaction the Vietnamese man says you killed my family you're like a black GI from the Vietnam War and you like bombed my family And Mm. so like, as soon as the Vietnamese like nail tech said that to me, I thought of that movie and the, all of those scenes, the dynamic that I had never understood before where, you know, like the black soldiers that American white government essentially sent shipped off to Vietnam to die because they didn't, they just exploited all of these black men who came to America and wanted to make a life for themselves. And they're like, yeah, we're going to send you to Vietnam and fight in a war. And they talk about that too. Like the, the four main characters in the movie talk about how they realized after they left the war and years later that the American government basically were like, yep, you're black and we don't care about you. So we're going to send you to Vietnam to fight our war for us. And it was just a really powerful moment for me because what I took away from that, from the movie combined with that experience was all of that came from like white American government and law. The movie does a good job of explaining how if you were a black man and that did happen to you and you were a soldier fighting for America in Vietnam, you just felt abandoned, like completely abandoned by your own government that you were supposed to be fighting for. So I definitely agree and have realized, I think, in ways that I weren't wasn't aware of before that, you know, racism against black and brown people is strong still in in other foreign countries. Yeah, for sure. Definitely is, which is so sad because it's kind of, you know, this global issue, right? It's not just here. Do you feel like adoption I mean, clearly by the, by like what we are saying to each other and what we have experienced individually, the language around race needs to change. If I say to you, if I ask you, do you feel like adoption is normalized today? And what does that word in the context of adoption mean to you? What is your response? I think that's such a complicated question because... I think especially with everything that is going on today with Mm -hmm. 
the Supreme Court nomination and everything, that adds more complexity to it. Definitely. I think in some regards, adoption itself has been quote unquote normalized in that Mm -hmm. you tell someone I was adopted and they kind of just like understand it. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think in some regards that can actually ever be completely normalized given that every adoptee's experience is their own and is unique, just as any other person in this planet has unique experiences. But I think, you know, in some regards that there could still be more education, especially to people out there who are more ignorant in Mm -hmm. regards to the complexities of adoption, right? Because I think that the term adoption itself is normalized like i said let people understand it they kind of they they're like oh yep you were raised by parents who weren't necessarily your biological parents got it Mm -hmm. but there's also just so many varieties in adoption right like there's family to family adoption there's transracial adoption there's domestic adoption there's foster to adoption all of that yeah and i probably didn't even hit all of them but then so there's already like those unique differences but then i think that also like Adoption itself, a lot of times, is seen as just only, like, the beauty in it and seen more from, like, the adoptive parents' perspectives, which I... Yes, exactly. I do think, right, like, especially, like, in my own story, like, I think there's a lot of beauty in my story and a lot of positivity. But I don't think that the complexities of adoption are well-known and even as positive as someone's story could be, Right. Like, I feel like in some regards, like, I don't know if this is the best language to use, but like, I feel like in some regards, I'm almost like the poster child of adoption. No, I feel you. I feel the same way. And have, you know, like this such a great experience and everything. But then with COVID and everything, it just almost like brought on like different complexities that I didn't realize about my adoption story or different things I never Mm -hmm. really considered but might be like, you know, impacting my mental health and things like that. And mm. I was adopted at such a young age. I was adopted at mm-hmm. three months, which from China is honestly the youngest I've like ever heard. So I was like super young, but just I think knowing, you know, different things and knowing how complex it could be, I think that needs to be talked about more, right? And I think that yeah. also at the end of the day in terms of adoption, like I think it's hard because – when you're young, you don't have the language and you don't have the self-advocacy and everything to kind of know your own story and speak up for it. And you also need to know part of it from like asking your parents. But I do think that there's a lot of adoptive parents who also just like tell their kids stories to other people. And especially like right now, like the broad public without necessarily Mm – And they may or may not, but not necessarily having their kids consent on all the details of all the, and the, like, especially in the case of Amy Coney Barrett, like, I don't know if you noticed or saw the video of how she introduced her kids. Yes. My next question was going to be if you saw it. Yeah. And I I think, you know, like, I think that was such a big thing because it was terrible. It was so bad. Like, the way that she literally used the traumatizing experiences of her kids as a prop Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. her own good. And then also the way that she talked about, oh, this is their beginning, but now they're talking. And 
you know, Eva versus like her other kids, like describing things like they're so compassionate and they have all these things and talking about Mm -hmm. their bright futures. I think in two regards, that was terrible because first of all, Mm -hmm. I think it denied so much of the complexity and the difficulty her adoptive children may have in their futures and or Mm -hmm. maybe experiencing, but don't know how to tell her. And also, I think on a racial scale, it's really bad Mm -hmm. because I don't know. And I don't know if her language would have changed if her adoptive kids were white or not. Mm. But racially, right, in our country, a lot of times people who are white, children who are white are Mm -hmm. told so many in so many different ways. You have such a bright future like you should. You could be anything you want to Mm -hmm. be, whereas Mm -hmm. black students are told, like, you're not enough and told, you know, and are more statistically referred to, like, special education programs for things like behavioral Mm. disorders and everything like that versus actually giving them the help and support they need to grow. Yeah. And and so I think that that is – the way she did that was really bad for both of those accounts. Yeah. But I do think it makes that question more complex too nowadays, right? Because, yeah, like I said, like the narrative that she's putting off is almost like the normalized narrative of adoption of like this fairy tale story and everything, whereas it really has so many more layers to it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think I 100% concur. I feel like what she said and how she portrayed adoption is still, I think, the majority way people understand adoption if they don't have a personal relationship to adoption or if you don't know someone personally in your life who is adopted that would hopefully, like, inform you better than that. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting because I almost feel like there's not that main resources do now and part because a lot of us are just coming into like that age of young adulthood where we want to like reach out to others who are more like us or who and I feel like it's like almost like there's such a big wave of adoptees who are millennials who are just kind of coming of age themselves or like coming into on their own terms of different identity things yeah I think that like you said like it's important to recognize no matter how positive or negative your experience growing up is is that adoption does have an impact on your life and it can still impact you even Mm -hmm. later in life, even if you don't realize it. Like I never thought I was going to have like adoption issues or whatever. Right. But like I'm Mm -hmm. realizing now that, you know, being adopted could really be impacting like how I am in like romantic relationships and things like that. And Uh I think that that's like super interesting because like that's never something I would have thought of as like a young child or like what if – Right, exactly. It's like these life experiences to really realize and recognize, oh, like I wonder if, you know, like if this is because of that or – and like also the more you learn, I feel like the more you question. I think that it's a perfect way to circle back to the beginning. Thank you so much, Emily, for talking with me. This was really great. And I – Loved our conversation. This was yeah, so great. Yeah, I did too. It was nice to kind of meet you. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to kind of meet you too. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Emily. I will let you go because it's pretty much square on the hour. And yeah, we'll be in touch. Sounds and we'll talk good. Again. Bye. Okay, bye. 
Okay, that is a wrap on my conversation with Emily. Thanks again so much to her for being willing to come on the podcast and talk about her personal story and all of her knowledge. I really appreciate it and feel like I am so much more knowledgeable for it, which hopefully now you all feel too. My question for the week is going off of something that inspired me in the episode, which is the idea of college and choosing what you study. I have a cousin who is in college right now, and I always like hearing about what classes she's going to take and what courses are interesting to her because, I don't know, I feel like there are so many other things that I wanted to get to in school that I never could. One of them definitely being Asian American studies. I regret never choosing to study that in school. So regardless of where you are in your academic career or not, whether college is coming up for you or whether it's behind you, if you could either go back or if you could choose any subject regardless of, you know, your prerequisites or whatever to study, which subject would you choose and why? As I just said, I think after all of my interviews and all of the stuff I've learned over the course of this podcast, I would definitely choose an Asian American study in in some way. And I'm interested to hear what everyone else would choose. There will be an Instagram post, as always, where you can tell me which thing you would study in the comments below. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Adopted, Now What? Hosted by me, Liza. If you liked what you heard, then please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Leave a good review and share this episode with a friend. If there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed on a later episode, DM me and tell me all about it. You can do that and find this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at I'm Adopted. Dot podcast. See you there.